Many Republicans are skeptical of the consensus of the intelligence community over Russian hacking of the DNC in cooperation with WikiLeaks. If that seems weird, it probably shouldn't. After all, Republicans have seen how regulatory agencies exceed and pervert their mandate on a regular basis. It's hard to make the case the CIA isn't politicized when the head of the CIA criticizes Donald Trump's Iran policy. It's also hard to argue that the EPA isn't politicized when they issue regulations that have nothing to do with their enabling legislation and those regulations get struck down by the Supreme Court. The latest indicator that our regulatory agencies are merely instruments of leftism will come courtesy of the EPA and the Federal Reserve. On Wednesday, the EPA released a report that vaguely accused the fracking industry of contaminating groundwater. That's actually different from last year's version, the draft version, in which the EPA said openly that fracking didn't have any, quote, widespread systematic impacts on drinking water. Now, that sentence is gone. Instead, in the, uh, of the original draft, which said contamination cases were small compared to the large number of fracking sites, now the report says fracking, quote, can impact, can impact drinking water resources under some circumstances, unquote. Deputy Assistant Administrator of the EPA, Thomas Burke, explained, quote, while the number of identified cases of drinking water contamination is small, the scientific evidence is insufficient to support estimates of the frequency of contamination. In other words, there's not enough evidence of contamination to say that contamination is serious, but there's also not enough evidence to dismiss the issue. Uh-huh. This, re- this report is obviously time to hamper the Trump administration's stated desire to open up fracking resources and relieve regulatory burdens. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve announced interest rate increases beginning just before Trump takes office. Officials announced yesterday a rate increase from 0.5% to 75, 0.75%, 0.75, that's a 0.25 basis point increase, and said they'd raise interest rates another 75%, 0.75% rather, over the course of the next year. This isn't a shock. I actually predicted the week after the election that the Fed would be doing this. The Wall Street Journal reports, quote, the Fed's more aggressive tone about rates took steam out of a stock market rally that has been pinned to hopes for faster growth spurred by the incoming Trump administration's plans to cut taxes, boost spending and cut regulations. What a surprise. No wonder so many Republicans want to see the regulatory state slashed, or at least they should. It's not enough merely to appoint the right heads of these executive branch institutions. They have to have their political wherewithal crushed. There's a reason Article I of the Constitution matters and simply is insufficient for Congress to continue to delegate to politically motivated bureaucrats like the ones at the Fed or the EPA. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, so much to talk about. Adam Carolla is going to be stopping by in just a few minutes. Uh, We are going to be doing the mailbag a little bit later today, which is why you need to subscribe so that you can be part of the mailbag, ask your questions live, and get them answered live. But first, we have to say hello to our our good advertisers over at Legacy Box. So, Legacy Box is is an advertiser I feel very strongly about. If you have memories that you are seeking to preserve, we're talking old films, old pictures, things that are moldering in the basement somewhere, and you want them loaded onto a thumb drive or preserved on DVD digitally so you can actually access them and use them and watch them, Legacy Box is the way to do it. So, you load Legacy Box, they send you a box, you load it with your old tapes, film, pictures, audio recordings of any type, and then you send it back. And you get them back in a couple of weeks on DVD or on a thumb drive, ready to watch and share and relive. Over 250,000 families have used them. For a limited time, you go to LegacyBox.com slash Ben to get a 40% discount on your order. LegacyBox.com slash Ben. LegacyBox.com slash Ben. It's the perfect time to do this right before Christmas. Great Christmas gift for your family. Great Father's Day, Mother's Day gift for everybody. Uh, And as I say, I'm very big into the idea of preserving memories because once those are gone, those can't be recovered. In fact, I I feel about this so strongly that for a long time I helped older people write their memoirs because I thought it was important to help preserve their memories because once they're gone, they're gone. Memory preservation is is something that's very important to me personally. Legacybox.com does it better than anybody. Legacybox.com slash Ben. You get that 40% discount on your order. Okay, so lots to get to. We begin today with the wisest, most generous, most beautiful among us. Of course, I'm talking about the celebrity class. They have decided that they and only they can stop the ascension of Donald Trump to the top of the American pinnacle. They have to stop Donald Trump from being elected president. Specifically on Monday, the electors are supposed to meet to ratify the, what we already know, which is that Trump is the president elect. And so a bunch of celebrities, including Martin Sheen and Deborah Messing from Will and Grace and uh, and a a bunch of others, they, they cut a PSA trying to tell electors, guys, don't vote for Trump, vote for somebody else and throw it into the house. Uh, So number one, this makes no sense because if you throw this election into the house, who do you think the house is going to vote for? You think they're going to go for Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney? They're going to vote for Trump, too. 
right? Look at how the House is behaving. The chances that they don't actually vote for Trump if it were thrown into the House is absolute silly nonsense. It doesn't matter. The celebrities think that they rule all and know all, and so here is their PSA on this issue. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue and to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is, to an eminent degree, endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree. Someone who is highly qualified for the job. The Electoral College was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There are 538 members of the Electoral College. You and just 36 other conscientious Republican electors can make a difference by voting your conscience on December 19th and thereby shaping the future of our nation. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. As you know, the Constitution gives electors the right to vote for any eligible person. Any eligible person, no matter which party they belong to. But it should certainly be someone you consider especially competent. Especially competent to serve as President of the United States of America. By voting your conscience, you and other brave Republican electors okay, can okay, give the okay, House Okay, shut these people up. Okay, this is, this is pretty amazing stuff. So, first of all, I don't know who these celebrities think they are. Why Martin Sheen thinks that so many people love Apocalypse Now that, he's, that we're going to be like, oh, you know what? I'm taking Martin Sheen's advice. Celebrities tried to do this throughout the entire election cycle. They tried to suggest that we ought to listen to their opinions. Hillary Clinton relied heavily on celebrities like Lena Dunham and Katy Perry to try and drive out the vote, and it failed miserably because guess what? We are not interested in what lefty celebrities from Hollywood think about politics. In fact, it alienates us. It makes me more like, like one, of the, one of the chief factors driving me toward for Trump, one of the things that was tugging at my heartstrings is all these celebrities who are pledging to leave. Right? All these celebrities who are saying, well, if Trump gets elected, I'm leaving the country, made it really a tough call for me. I mean, I, I, really, <laughs> I really hate these people. And, and if they leave the country, the country not only becomes smarter, it becomes better. And now here they are trying to lecture electors into, into moving away from Trump. I have to also say, I don't know who the producer is on these PSAs, but they always get the same producer for these PSAs. They always have like some crappy Elton John piano music in the background, some meaningful piano music, like playing Candle in the Wind in the background. And then they always have that little montage where they all say the same words over and over. Where they say, we're not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. We're not asking you to vote for Hillary We're not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. So, yeah, I got it the first time you said it. it. Actually, just to show you how ridiculous and, and simplistic these PSAs are and how they are produced by the exact same person, check out this one for gun control. Columbine. Virginia Tech. Tucson. Aurora. Fort Hood. Oak Creek. Newtown. 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 How many more? How many more? How many more colleges? How many yes, more we all get how this works. Okay, so go, like we figures. need some new creative directors here. How about some new, some new creative directors uh, in, in charge of the the celebrity PSAs because these are really ridiculous. Well, you know what? I'm going to ask Adam Carolla about that. Adam Carolla joins us now on the line. Adam is, of course, uh, the the guy behind the new documentary, the 24 Hour War. Really fantastic documentary. I had a chance to watch it. It's about the the battle between Henry Ford II and Enzo Ferrari on the on uh, at Le Mans. This is the 24 Hour race. The the documentary is fantastic. The 24 our war. Uh, it is really worth watching. Adam, Adam, you produced and directed this? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's really well done. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful film to watch. It moves really quickly, which makes sense. It's a racing film, but it's also quite fascinating. So I want to ask you about the film, obviously. But first preliminary question, have you seen the celebrity PSA that just came out asking the electors to vote not for Donald Trump? And it's like Martin Sheen gazing wistfully into camera and asking, uh, asking the electors to betray the voters? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, first off, you know, it's a weird thing because uh, they have the crazy hubris and that it's like, that I, it's gone in Hollywood. Like that, that part, you know, that part where you have to float over yourself and monitor yourself and realize what you must sound like to other people or what you might sound like to other people. They, they've lost that in Hollywood. We all need to do that before we leave the house every day and every interaction we have. What does this sound like or what does it look like when you're at the supermarket and there's a line and you want to walk to the front of the line in front of 10 people who have been waiting? That's what you want to do, but what it looks like and what you feel like are 
totally different things, and we've lost that. Certainly in Hollywood. Well, I think that they need to hire you. If they're going to do one of these, they need to hire you as director also. Because as I was pointing out, every one of these PSAs looks exactly the same. It's the same 10 celebrities standing there gazing into camera with either a black or a white background. And then they come to some phrase and 87 people repeat it in a row. And then that's supposed to be meaningful because they all agree. Uh, So you're a director. I mean, just on a directorial level, it, it must be a little insulting to you. Yeah, and and I, and I love when they do the you know not one more, not one more woman raped on campus, not one more child left behind, not one more child that goes to bed hungry, not one more. It's like okay, that's a fantastic plan, and it's uh, as effective as the end war bumper sticker that's on the Prius at the Whole Foods in Santa Monica. But what exactly would the plan be? <laughs> well, Adam Carolla, I, I do want to ask you about your film because I know you have limited time here. So, what what got you started in uh, in deciding to put together this this documentary, the Twenty Four Hour War? I know you're you're a car fanatic. I mean, if we go to your studios, it's, it's all these beautiful vintage cars. Uh, what got you really interested in this particular story? Um, I was aware of it. Uh, I did a, another documentary called uh, "Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman," so I was sort of started to get bits and pieces of stories about Le Mans because which is the biggest race in the world which has been going on for about a hundred years and uh, it's the most prestigious race in the world and Paul Newman went to Le Mans in 1979 and actually won his class in Le Mans so um, I was interested in Le Mans and the history of Le Mans and when I started, and I'd always known about the story about Ford wanted to buy Ferrari. Ford, um, the, the basic story is that the, the American automotive manufacturers had banned racing. And Ford the second, Henry Ford the second, was on the board, and they all had this handshake deal of no racing. But GM had created the Corvette, and they were out racing every weekend, and these were privateers, but they had the support of GM and Chevrolet. And they were out winning, and the market share shifted about 15% in one year, which is huge if you really think about 1962. And the early choices are pretty much Ford or GM. And GM takes 15% of that market share in one year because of it was race on, it was win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Mm -hmm. So um, Ford had nothing to race. They just made these big land yachts, and they didn't have anything sporty that they could could go out and modify and race. So Ford, way behind, and eventually just said, screw it, we're going racing too. We don't have anything to race. He said, I'll just buy Ferrari outright. And all they do is race and win, and we'll jump right to the top, go right to the front of the racing line by spending, I think it was $16 million at the time on Ferrari. And at the last minute, Ferrari threw him out of his office, and Henry Ford II went back to Dearborn, uh, vowing to beat him at, at his, in his own backyard at, at Le Mans, the biggest race in the world that, that Ferrari dominated at. That's an amazing story, and, and again, really well done film. Adam, you look at the, the auto industry today in America, and um, it's it's obviously very different than the sort of kind of creativity and hard-charging nature of the auto industry back in the 60s. What do you think changed in the United States about the auto industry? Because now so much of the auto industry was on the public dole, uh, thanks to thanks to the Obama administration. The fact that it even needed the public dole uh, is kind of a, a sad commentary. Uh, so much of, of foreign cars is now manufactured in America, too, so the idea of even made in America is not really totally accurate. What do you think the differences are between the, the, the auto industry in the 60s, when, when Amer- the American auto industry dominated the world, and the American auto industry now? Well, you know, they're, they're back on the rise now. Uh, you know, what the American auto industry suffered from was, you know, it's the same thing. You know, we had the big three automotive manufacturers out here, let's say, in the 60s, around the time of this movie. We had the big three, and we had the big three networks back then. And when you have a big three and you have a monopoly, or at least a, a, essentially a monopoly, they, they can buy Ford or they can buy GM, 
price or whatever, but they don't, they can't buy Honda, Toyota, Lexus, whatever, Datsun, Nissan. All right. So the big three, when you have a monopoly, gets you horrible, it gets you the Chrysler Cordova. It gets you like horrible, horrible, you know, AMC Gremlin, AMC Pacer. You get a horrible product. Now, when you have the big three on TV, you get Dukes of Hazard and Fantasy Island, right? <laughs> how, would, how would Fantasy Island or Dukes of Hazard fare today in this open marketplace filled with Games of Thrones and Orange is the New Black and all the other product that's being put out by all the other manufacturers in, in terms of entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. You never... You couldn't compete. Well, the the big three now, the big three, you know, ABC, NBC, uh, CBS, they're forced to come out with a good product now because they'll be crushed. They're losing market share. So there were no, they had no, um, they were the alpha males and they had no predators that could go up against them because Japan was over there and nobody wanted those little crappy boxes over here. And they just got soft and they got lazy. And the next thing you know, Honda and Toyota and everyone else just came in and started eating their lunch. And it's really just kind of a story of competition and how competition makes everything better. I mean, how much better a American car is today than it was 10 years ago. So think about the quality, the fit and the finish and everything else. It's because they're forced to or they're, they're going out of business because Lexus and Infiniti, right. Nissan, who, Mercedes, BMW, uh, Audi, they'll never stop. Yep. They'll never stop improving their yep. product. 100%. So the, the documentary, for for those who haven't seen it, is The 24-Hour War, and it is really worth watching. I have seen th- I have seen it. it it's tremendous. Uh, Adam, where where is it available? What's the easiest way for people to, to see it? You can go to my website, chassis.com, with a C-H-A-S-S-Y, Dot com and you can get it there. That's us just doing our own thing. You can get the Newman documentary there. You can stream it there. You can buy a Blu-ray there. It's all it's all there. But you can go to iTunes or Amazon or most of the places you go to get stuff and, and see it there as well. Awesome. Well, it, it is a great documentary. Say the 24-Hour War, the great Adam Carolla. Also, obviously, check out Adam's podcast, which is the, the funniest podcast in the country. Hey, Adam, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, man. Talk soon. Talk soon. All right. So back to what we were talking about with regard to these celebrity PSAs. Uh, it is it is totally incredible that these celebrities really think that they're going to flip the country. Do, do they even understand what would happen if they got what they wanted? Let's say that there are a bunch of electors and they all decide, you know what? I really, really loved Martin Sheen in West Wing and Wall Street so much that I need, I need to flip my vote on Donald Trump and hand this election to somebody else. It has to go to somebody who didn't run. It has to go to the House of Representatives, or I'll vote for Hillary Clinton. Do the the celebrities understand what kind of backlash would ensue? Do they understand how angry people would be? I didn't vote for Trump. I'd be pissed. That's not how the system works. You don't get to convince a bunch of electors because you're a Hollywood glitterati that the person who was duly elected hasn't been duly elected. But celebrities aren't used to getting their way, and they are fussing something fierce at this point. Uh, they, live in a, they live in a universe where everything uh, is built for them and around them, and, it, and, it's, and when life doesn't go their way, they can't handle it. It's why you see celebrities crying and weeping and gnashing their teeth. It's why you see Joy Behar, who, as I've said before, uh, individually lowers the IQ of the United States by at least a standard deviation. Uh, That's why she says that we can still stop Trump on, on the show The View – uh, that destroys brain cells at an exponential rate. Actually, this is why we show short clips of The View. If we actually showed long clips of The View, by the time we finished the clip, our entire audience would be dead simply because of brain cell loss. But here's Joy Behar. When we first started, when he first was elected, I was angry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people uh, who were, were crying. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, don't get sad, get mad. Mm-hmm. So I was in touch with my rage. Today... <laughs> <laughs> Today, I read, you know, I, I read the New York Times, I read other things, and I realize that the Democrats are not going to do what they have to do to stop him. That the Democrats are rolling over, unless they're changing it right now. We have a chance to stop Trump with the Electoral College. They're about to vote, 
And according to the Constitution and Alexander Hamilton, these are the reasons they can vote against him. Right. This is the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Foreign involvement in the election, number one. Check. <laughs> we all know that the Russians hacked into the whole thing. Right. Uh, his business ties have already introduced unparalleled and unconstitutional conflicts of interest. He's not given up. Is he giving up his golf course and stuff? Right First of all, the idea that Joy Behar is now quoting Alexander Hamilton is individually hilarious to me. Like, that's singularly funny to me. Like, these people give a crap about the Federalist Papers. Cite any of them, okay? Can they even say what the Federalist Papers are about? Who are the other two authors? Does she know the other two authors of the Federalist Papers? It would be great if Jedediah Bila, who's sitting there, would ask her that. Okay, Joy, you know, you're quoting the Federalist Papers now. Can you name the other two authors? By the way, the, the answer, for those who don't know, are John Jay and James Madison. But could she name that? Of course not. And so they're selectively quoting this stuff in an attempt to claim that, that Trump cannot be president. The elector should stop him. Again, the, the fact that she says, well, I wept and I gnashed my teeth and I donned the sackcloth and ashes. And that's how we're going to save the country. No, all you're going to do is divide the country further. All you're going to do is continue to destroy the country. I mean, listen to this GOP elector. This GOP elector has now come out and he says, I'm receiving death threats because people want me not to vote for Trump. What have people said to you? What are the what are the threats? Mm -hmm. Well, I've I've had people talk about putting a bullet in the back of my mouth. Uh, I've had these death wishes of people uh, just saying, "I hope you die," or "Do society a favor, throw yourself in front of a bus." Just a lot of angry angry messages. And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of these people don't understand that threats over the internet are threats. It's just because you're behind a keyboard doesn't mean that they're not legitimate. And so I would hope that people would start to realize that and also realize that, again, as electors from Michigan specifically, we don't even have the power to change our votes. Okay, and that's true. They would actually be prosecuted in Michigan if they change their votes because the state gets to determine how exactly their electors act when they, when they are in the electoral college. But, of course, celebrities don't care about that. We have to pause here for a second and say hello to our friends at Birch Gold. So if you're looking at, at what the Fed is doing right now, and the Fed has begun to raise interest rates, they plan on raising interest rates significantly over the course of the next year, you're concerned about how that's going to impact the stock market, you're concerned about what that's going to do to the value of the dollar, then you need to go and buy some gold right now, invest part of your portfolio, in precious metals, birchgold.com, birchgold.com slash Ben. That's the place to go do it. They can help you shift your IRA or 401k over into precious metals without the tax consequences that normally would attach. That is the birchgold.com slash Ben. They have a 16-page free kit in which they explain everything you need to know. And then, you know, call them up, talk to them, get all your questions answered, uh, and then invest some of your money in precious metals. They're the folks I would trust. A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, birchgold.com. Okay, so... We are going to, to talk a little bit as we continue here about Donald Trump and, uh, and his big meeting with the tech magnates because that's kind of fascinating and it's interesting to talk about. Um, but in order for you to see that, you have to go over to dailywire.com to view the rest of the show. We have a lot coming up. We have the, the mailbag today. When you subscribe and you spend $8 a month, then not only do you get to see the rest of the show with me live, you get to be part of the mailbag. We answer questions live on air, as our subscribers well know. If you get an annual subscription, you get a free copy of my book, True Allegiance, signed by moi, and it is something that you can treasure, pass down to your children, and say that you once touched a page that a pen that was touched by Shapiro had once written upon. So, very exciting stuff for you. Dailywire.com, $8 a month or the annual subscription. And we are, of course, the largest conservative podcast in the United States. So while the celebrities try to steal the election away, while the celebrities try to run away with this election, and while they threaten, and while leftists threaten electors trying to trying to undo an election that they said, I, I remember when Hillary Clinton said that it was a threat to the republic not to accept the results of an election. Democrats seem to be having some trouble with this one. And uh, I, again, I do love the celebrities citing the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. A little bit later, I want to talk about the Bill of Rights, because I think it's interesting. We'll do that in Stuff I Like. Um, meanwhile, Donald Trump is meeting at Trump Tower with all of these tech titans. So Donald Trump, uh, is uh, he met the other day with all of these, with all of these, major, with all these major techies. And uh, one of the people he met with, by the way, is Facebook. And I want to briefly digress here and talk about the new Facebook standards for news, because this is actually really important. And before it slips my mind, I want to mention it. Facebook has now unveiled its new standards for how it's going to police fake news. The left has been up in arms, of course, about Hillary losing, and they've been claiming that it's because of fake news. It's fake news that caused Hillary Clinton to, to lose. It's, it's bad headlines that weren't true. It was, it was stories that were false, and those have to be flagged somehow. So what exactly is Facebook going to do? Well, according to BuzzFeed, 
Facebook is now going to be relying on organizations, quote, that have signed on to the International Fact-Checking Network Fact Checkers Code of Principles to enable them to verify selected links being shared on Facebook and have those fact checks attached to the original link. So here's how it works. You see an article. You don't like the article. You report it to Facebook. Facebook, if it gets enough of those complaints or it sees enough comments that don't like an article or it sees that the, the article is too viral, that a lot of people are clicking on it but not a lot of people are sharing it, then Facebook instead decides that they are going to notify these fact-checkers. The fact-checkers then have the ability to slap a little label on the story, and it's a little exclamation point, little red exclamation point that says, disputed by third-party fact-checkers. Once the story has been flagged, you can't promote it with an ad. It will be listed lower on the Facebook feeds. There's only one problem. Who are the gatekeepers? People like PolitiFact and FactCheck.org and Snopes and The Washington Post and ABC News, all of which lean left, heavily left. PolitiFact is one I know pretty well because I've been rated by PolitiFact, and PolitiFact is utterly full of crap. PolitiFact is so full of crap that in 2009 and 2012, they analyzed President Obama's claim that you'd be able to keep your health care plan and keep your doctor if you wanted to keep your health care plan and your doctor. They rated it half true in 2009 and in 2012, and then by 2014, they rated it their lie of the year. So they're real quality fact checkers. They're not leftists at all. There's such leftist, but what, what, here's how the left operates, by the way, when they do the fact-checking routine, and it really is disgusting. What they do is they, they take something that is true, and then they argue with the terminology. So, for example, I cut a video called the, the Myth of the Tiny Radical Muslim Minority, in which I went through a bunch of polls of Muslim countries all over the world and what Muslims in those countries thought about things like, should the country be governed by Sharia law? which includes chopping off people's hands for, for thieving and, and punishment of death for adultery uh, and, uh, and all other sorts of brutal, barbaric things uh, that we don't apply in the modern world. And I went through all these polls, and I set a standard. And I said very clearly what the standard was going to be for how I analyzed whether somebody was extreme or radical or not. And the way that I did that is I defined it as the people who supported Sharia law, not just Sharia law, in terms of like civil law, but in terms of criminal law, like they wanted Sharia law to govern in their country. Uh, and then I talked about support for terrorism. I talked about support for honor killing, for example. And, uh, and so here's how PolitiFact rated that. They said, in the first place, Shapiro consistently used the highest percentages available in the surveys to maximize the number of Muslims he could tag with the radical label. Well, I mean, I, I did define the standard and told you what it was. Secondly, he used a broad definition of radical. To choose one main example, there are many varieties of how people interpret Sharia law and support for it says little about a person's specific beliefs. Well, that's not true. It is true there are many varieties of, of Sharia law, and I've discussed that before on the program. But these polls specifically ask Sharia law governing in your country. Okay, there's not a person who is moderate who believes that. That's like saying to, to, that a Christian believes that biblical law should govern in the United States. Is that person extreme? Yeah, that person's extreme, right? If you think that biblical law should govern in the country, that would make you an extreme Christian by PolitiFact's definition for sure. But if you say the same thing about Muslim law, then it's not. What's hilarious about the PolitiFact rating is they look at my statistics, the ones that I, that I suggest, right, where I talk about the number of radicals in, for example, in, in, in Egypt or Indonesia, and the totals that they come up with, they come up with still well over 19% of all Muslims on planet Earth are radical by their measure. And then they say, to be clear, we're not saying 19% of, of these Muslims are radical. We're simply saying by applying different but reasonable criteria to the same data, you can reach a vastly different result. Okay, that's an amazing... And, and then how did they rate my claim? They rated it false. Not half true. Not mostly true. Not mostly false. False. Outright false, right? Simply based on their opinion. That's how PolitiFact rates things. So one of the reasons why I am concerned, one of the reasons why I am concerned is that I am, is that PolitiFact is biased. I mean, just to take, again, the example where I was actually analyzed by PolitiFact, listen to this. This is amazing. It says, in two countries, Shapiro focused on support for honor killings. And then they quote James Zogby, who's head of the Arab American Institute and rather extreme on his own. He said, Zogby said that as cruel as honor killings are, they are not tied to beliefs that underlie beheadings and suicide bombings. One has nothing to do with the other. So if 99% of people in Afghanistan are for honor killings, they're not radical Muslims. They're not extremists. That's how PolitiFact rates things. And Facebook is saying that ratings agency should be able to shut down a story on their, on their outlet. That's an amazing thing, and that's scary, and that's a problem, and that's something that we should be fighting. You watch. You know what the left is going to do? What the left is going to do is they're going to activate all of their minions to go on Facebook and only send right-wing stories into the fact-checkers to be banned. That's what's going to happen. 
That's what's going to happen. So do you trust those gatekeepers? I don't trust those gatekeepers. We'll see how this plays out in reality. But if Facebook starts banning and demoting all sorts of stories that are true, they just don't like the angles on them, or have an angle on the truth that is plausible, but they don't like the angle, then Facebook is going to lose a lot of audience really quickly. And I say that as somebody who really likes Facebook, and we use Facebook a lot here at Daily Wire. That would be tragic, and I'm I'm hoping that they don't do that. Okay, meanwhile, so, so Trump, anyway, is meeting with all these tech titans, and he, among the people he's meeting with are Jeff Bezos, and he's meeting with Facebook, and he's meeting with uh, and he's meeting with Apple, and he's meeting with not Twitter. And the reason, by the way, he's not meeting with Twitter uh, is because Twitter apparently refused to create an emoji. This is true, according to Politico. They they refused to create an emoji for Crooked Hillary for hashtag Crooked Hillary, and so Trump cut them off at the knees and said he wouldn't include them in this meeting, which is really quite amazing. Uh, Sean Spicer said that the Twitter snub wasn't intentional. Uh, here's what Sean Spicer had to say about this clip 10. I No, I have no say in who attends meetings like that. Zero. Uh, I'd like to think that I do. I think Mr. Trump, I'm, I'm, pl- I'm pleased to present him with assistance on, on media relations, but that's where the water's edge is on that. So not only did I have zero say in anyone who was invited to that meeting at all, uh, that really calls into question some of the top-notch reporting that we're seeing these days. Okay, well, I, I will say this. Sean Spicer said there was just not enough room at the table to invite Twitter, which is Trump's number one mean of com- means of communication. Uh, worth pointing out, there was room at the table for Ivanka, Donald Jr., and Eric. Donald Jr. and Eric, by the way, are supposed to not be involved in the transition at all. They're supposed to head up Trump's businesses. Anyway, Trump meets these tech titans, and here's what Donald Trump has to say about it. This is a truly amazing group of people. I won't tell you the hundreds of calls we've had asking to come to this meeting. And uh, I will say, Peter was sort of saying, no, that company's too small. And these are monster companies. Okay, and then he continues uh, by saying, I just want to play this one clip of Reagan, okay? This is a clip of Reagan. Uh, this is from his, uh, his original election cycle. I think it's in 1980. And here's what he had to say about government. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Okay, and, uh, and then here is Donald Trump. Uh, this is clip 4B. I want to add that I'm here to help you folks do well. And you're doing well right now, and I'm very honored by the bounce. They're all talking about the bounce. So right now, everybody in this room has to like me at least a little bit, but uh, we're going to try and have that bounce continue. And perhaps even more importantly, we want you to keep going with the incredible innovation. There's nobody like you in the world. In the world. There's nobody like the people in this room. There's nobody like you in the world. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. So things have changed in the Republican Party, needless to say. And it is pretty clear that this is how Donald Trump views the economy. Now, this is not Trump's fault, okay? A lot of people, it's smart politics, but a lot of people in the United States are basically fascist when it comes to the economy. They think that the way that economics works is the president sits down at a big table with a lot of powerful people, and then they hash out policy together. They sit there and then they hash out what the best policy is going to be for this guy and that guy. This is how people get rich in politics. The way you get rich in politics, I know somebody right now who's about to get very rich from the Trump administration in all likelihood because he's a funder of Trump and owns a business that could pay off for him if if Trump kicks contracts his way. The way a lot of people become very rich in politics is by working with the president of the United States or with the governor or with the with the local city council to get special best benefits and dispensations, right? That's how people get very wealthy here. And people tend to think that this is how the economy goes, is a bunch of powerful people with their stogies sitting in the other room figuring it out. The way the economy is supposed to work in a free country is that you set a broad policy, and then the broad policy impacts everybody equally, and then we see who wins and who loses. It's a broad policy. If it's good for the economy, it's good for the economy. But it's not Donald Trump calling off Jeff Bezos and alternatively threatening him and wheedling him. And remember, half the people in that clip that he's calling wonderful and saying are just great are people he's attacked before. So Jeff Bezos is sitting there, uh, the, the guy who owns Amazon and also the Washington Post, and here is Donald Trump attacking Jeff Bezos. You know who's the worst, the Washington Post? First of all, it's a tax scam because the person that owns the Washington Post, as you know, has Amazon. And wants to keep his taxes down. So he uses the Washington Post for power so that they don't raise taxes, okay? And is it Amazon? Yeah, it's Amazon. And uh, it's a tax scam. The whole thing is a scam. But they are the worst. They write the worst stories. And they call up about some deal that was, took place 22 years ago. 
I said, well, do you want to hear about a good deal? No, no, we're not interested in the good deals. Oh, that's good. Because I got, a, I got so many good... I said, do you want to hear about some good deals? Washington Post is a tax scam. Remember that. Remember I You're said... Saying, well, okay, so then he had that guy who owns... First of all, Washington Post is not a tax scam. Then he, then he brings in Jeff Bezos, and Jeff Bezos comes out the other end grinning, talking about how wonderful the meeting was. Do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that Trump threatens people he doesn't like and gives things to people that he does? By the way, other people that he, that he was calling wonderful in that meeting... Here's Trump attacking attacking Apple, the company Apple, who is sitting two chair. Tim Cook is sitting two chairs down from him in that meeting and looking like he wants to die, which is kind of funny. And here is Trump attacking Apple just a few months ago. Okay. What I think you ought to do is boycott Apple until such time as they give that security number. How do you like? That? I just thought it. Boycott Apple. Here's the thing. First of all, the phone's not even owned by this young thug that killed all these people. The phone's owned by the government. Okay, not even his phone. We don't even have to go Here that far. is that Apple should be boycotted because they wouldn't turn over information to the FBI that would, rec- that would allow the FBI to decrypt the, uh, the San Bernardino terrorist phones. Okay, and then he also criticized Apple for not building more factories in the United States. And there's, and there's Tim Cook sitting two chairs down from him. Who do you think is going to be making concessions to Donald Trump? Who do you think is going to be changing policy? Tim Cook. Or be getting a bribe? Tim Cook. Right? Donald Trump attacked Google in the middle of this election cycle. The Google poll has us leading Hillary Clinton by two points nationwide. And that's despite the fact that Google's search engine was suppressing the bad news about Hillary Clinton. How about that? How about that? Okay, and that, by the way, wasn't true, but it doesn't matter. Google was sitting in that room with him, and these are the people he's praising as the best and the brightest. So, in other words, they're the best and the brightest when he thinks he can play ball with them, and they're the worst when he doesn't. And that's not the way that the economy should work. There's a lot of economic illiteracy going around here, and it's not being questioned by a lot of conservatives. Reince Priebus, who's the White House chief of staff uh, and, a, and a bootlicker extraordinaire, uh, he, was, he was on with Hugh Hewitt. Uh, talking about the plans for the Trump administration. We talked about this yesterday, that the first six weeks, first first two months, first three months of Trump's administration could be grand. He could do some really fantastic things. And I'm not doing that in an I hope way. I think he actually will. I think he's going to give us a conservative judicial nominee. Whether Mitch McConnell fulfills on that is anybody's guess. Um, I've suggested I don't think that he will, but we'll find out. Uh, Trump could pass some tax reform, which would be great, do some regulatory reform, which would be great. But Reince Priebus uh, then said this to Hugh Hewitt, and this is an amazing statement that is totally ignorant of how basic economics operates. We can make everything here, or our goal should be to try to make everything we can in the United States so that the money gets put in the pockets of Americans. That's, that's, that's fully insane. That's fully, I have a question for you, you, the listener. Okay, Do you make everything that you own? Do you sit out in the back and sew your jeans? Do you get calico from wherever calico is made from? I don't even know. And you sit out there and you press your calico and you dye it blue and then you make your own jeans? Do you make your own t-shirts? Would that make you richer or poorer if you did? There are lots of places around the earth where people are on subsistence diets because it's all they can farm in their backyard. Are they rich or are they poor? Or are you richer for being able to go to the supermarket and trade for things? Okay, this is idiot economics. Idiot economics. We're going to make everything here. We don't want to make t-shirts in the United States. You know why? It would cost five times as much for a t-shirt. I like getting a t-shirt for seven bucks off Amazon that was made in Vietnam. I think it's great. You know why? Because then I can spend money on things that I actually care about. This idea that everything has to be made here, again, this is economics for idiots. Two principles in economics for idiots. One, make everything yourself. Okay, that ignores comparative and competitive advantage in trade. You, don't, you personally, you don't want to make everything yourself. You don't want your kids making everything themselves. The people who make everything themselves are poor people. Okay, that's just the reality. That's principle number one. That make everything yourself, nonsense, stupidity. And principle number two is you want the government so deeply involved in business that they're picking winners and losers because, after all, that's how, that's how the sausage gets made. That's a disaster area. And I understand people are over the moon about a lot of the publicity here, and they should be. I mean, Trump's really good at this. Trump is very good at, at garnering publicity and making himself look all powerful. He's not the first guy to do it. Obama did it back in 2009. He had all of these roundtable meetings with big business executives in an attempt to, to shame them and humiliate them. And it worked for him. He became very personally popular. It doesn't mean it's a guarantee of good policy. And just as, a, just as an indicator of how it's not great to have a government that can crack down on enemies and benefit friends, Donald Trump is a pretty vindictive dude. Donald Trump, had a, he, he attacked Vanity Fair 
uh, on Twitter this morning. He said, has anyone looked at really poor numbers of Vanity Fair magazine? Way down. Big trouble. Dead. <laughs> Great and Carter. No talent will be out. Now, I have, to, I have to say, I think it's hilarious when Donald Trump attacks Vanity Fair. But the reason he's attacking Vanity Fair is because Vanity Fair had the temerity to run this piece. Right? They ran this piece. Trump Grill could be the worst restaurant in America. Okay, that's, that's the piece that they ran. And so he took to Twitter, the president-elect of the United States, because somebody criticized his stupid restaurant, took to Twitter to criticize Vanity Fair. Do I think it's kind of funny? Yeah. Do I think that that's a good indicator for how he's going to treat business? Not particularly. Not particularly. Well, meanwhile, the controversy continues to spiral out of control uh, with regard to the Russian hacking. Democrats, without evidence, continue to maintain, like Joy Behar, that the election itself was hacked. Republicans act like Vladimir Putin is not a human and they don't know who he is or why he exists. And the media continue to overplay every hand they've been given. NBC News last night reported that, according to their sources, Vladimir Putin personally authorized the hack of the DNC. That what started as a feud with Hillary Clinton quickly became an effort to damage the political process in the United States. And at the center of it all, the Russian president himself. New information derived from diplomatic sources and spies working for U.S. allies points directly to the Russian president with one high-level official saying that Putin's role was to direct how the hacked material from Democrats was used. His objectives multifaceted. It began, one official says, as a vendetta against Hillary Clinton after the former Secretary of State criticized Russian's parliamentary elections back in 2011. Okay, so now they're claiming that, that Putin personally authorized it. I probably think that's true, but again, that's because I think Putin is the worst person in the world, and I think that all 17 intelligence agencies of which we are aware have pointed to Russia as being involved, and Putin runs the government, so that's not a big stretch. But it is worth noting that in this story, again, they're citing unnamed sources. It's always unnamed sources. That's why an investigation would be a good thing. On the other hand, it's worth noting also that Loretta Lynch points out something, the, 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 as, as Andrew Clavin puts it, the blandly sinister attorney general. Uh, she says that all of this talk about the election itself being hacked, that's a bunch of crap and there's no evidence for it. And it isn't even a matter of the results. It's people's faith in the system and the faith in the integrity of the system. At the same time, the Department of Homeland Security was very actively engaged in reaching out to every state to make sure that they had access to every resource they needed to protect the state electoral system as well. And fortunately, we didn't see the sort of technical interference that I know people had concerns about also in terms of voting machines and the like. But a lot of education went on about that, a lot of training went on about that, and a significant number of states did reach out to DHS and talk with them about those issues. So on the left, what you're seeing is people overplaying it, despite the evidence that even Loretta Lynch acknowledges that the election was not hacked, and people saying that it's an illegitimate election, it's not true. As I said, since the very beginning of this particular round of the scandal cropped up, I think the Russians hacked the DNC. I also think that Trump would have won anyway, because the statistics just don't bear out the idea that WikiLeaks impacted the election that deeply. Um, but on the other hand, you have people on the right pretending that Vladimir Putin is wonderful and glorious and nothing bad has happened here. My, my favorite is when people say, and I've heard this now from a couple of people, why would Vladimir Putin want Donald Trump elected? Um, because of everything he said the entire campaign, like all of the things. You can't name a thing he said that was bad about Vladimir Putin during this campaign. Kellyanne Conway, who's just become a prolific, prolific liar, she said that uh, it was irresponsible for the White House to say that Trump wanted the Russians to hack Hillary. Putin, so. Right, right. Well, let's talk about uh, Josh Ernest. And I've never remembered this. The press secretary really playing politics from, from the yes, White House agreed. when his candidate is not even running. But here he's saying Donald Trump actually called on Russia to hack. Listen. The Republican nominee himself calling on Russia to hack his opponent. It might be an indication that he was obviously aware and concluded, based on whatever facts or sources he was he had available to him that Russia was involved the Republican nominee chose a campaign chair that had extensive lucrative personal financial ties to the Kremlin and it was obvious to those who were covering the race that the hack and leak strategy that had been operationalized was not being equally applied to the two parties 
That is just remarkable. That is breathtaking. I guess he's auditioning to be a political pundit after his job is over soon. That is incredibly disappointing to hear from the podium of the White House press secretary because he is, he basically, he essentially stated that the president-elect had knowledge of this, maybe even fanned the flames. Um, it's, it's incredibly irresponsible, and I wonder if his boss, President Obama, agrees. President yes, Obama he does, said, he said it on the <clears throat> Daily Show a couple of days prior that the Republican, uh, that Donald Trump called for the hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails. Remember when he made that sarcastic, which he claimed to be sarcastic? Okay, stop it there. So Kellyanne Conway says that it's just incredible, breathtaking, that anybody would claim that Donald Trump wanted the Russians to hack Hillary Clinton or was interested in having the Russians hack Hillary Clinton. It's just, it's incredible to think that. Flashback, Donald Trump, go. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of falsehood. And the idea that on the left, that this election was, the election itself was hacked, and on the right, that the Russians have nothing to do with anything, that the wonderfulest, wonderfulest people we've ever seen uh, is, is really disturbing. It's very rare that I find myself in agreement with Lindsey Graham, who I think is wrong about a lot of things. But the senator from South Carolina gets this one right. And he says that if we just allow Russia to get away with everything, they're going to continue to push. I can't imagine I would vote for anybody that believes that we should not sanction Russia, given the fact that they did, in fact, interfere in our election. They've been destabilizing democracies all over the world. The, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia. I can go, I can give you 20 minutes of Russian misdeeds toward our allies. I can tell you what they've done in terms of war crimes in Syria. And if somebody wants to be Secretary of State, and they hear the brief I've heard, and they don't believe the Russians were involved in our election, interfering in our elections, then I really question their judgment. And if they don't believe sanctions are appropriate, given what Putin's been doing all over the world, including our backyard, then I don't think they have the judgment to be Secretary of State, because if you don't go after Russia, you're inviting the other bad actors on the planet but, but you to know, come after you. And, and Graham, of course, is exactly right there. So can we just have some like realistic talk here? Okay, the fact is, that Russia was involved in the hack. That doesn't mean that Trump won because of the Russian hack. To pretend that Russia is our friend and ally and that it's fine what they did, it's not. It's not. And it's just silly that people feel the need in knee-jerk fashion to defend Putin because they want to defend Trump. I don't even see why those two things should be connected. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate. So I mentioned yesterday uh, that uh, 1939 was the greatest year in movie history. Uh, the, the movie that won Best Picture that year was, of course, Gone with the Wind. If you've never seen Gone with the Wind, uh, it is considered widely considered one of the three best films ever made. Uh, it is an amazing film. There, there's a couple of, of, just as far as the direction goes, there are a couple of shots in that film that are just unbelievable. Every shot is basically a work of art. Uh, a lot of people now hate the movie because the movie is not rabidly anti-Confederate and because uh, Hattie McDaniel, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, uh, it was a black woman uh, who plays Scarlett O'Hara's slave and then, is, and then after the Civil War is freed, she, uh, the, she is, is, seems not particularly sad to be a slave. Uh, and so everybody in today's world says, that's awful, that's awful, awful, awful. Okay, well, it's, it's also possible that it's a work of fiction written by a Southern woman, and it reflects some of the biases of the time, but that doesn't change the quality of the film. Also, not every story has to be the same. Not every story has to be 12 Years a Slave. The, you know, 12 Years a Slave is much more realistic as to how slavery was than I think Gone with the Wind is, um, clearly. But that doesn't mean that, that Gone with the Wind has to be seen as some sort of referendum on slavery generally. I don't think Gone with the Wind is making the case for slavery. I think that it's making the case that actually uh, the, the world of the old Southern chivalry, the old Southern romance is dead. That's what Rhett Butler sort of represents. Uh, and finally, Scarlett learns that, that, that is, uh, that's something worth embracing, if you're going to speak metaphorically. In any case, here is the trailer from Gone with the Wind, also one of the great scores of all time. been looking for you everywhere. Ashley's going to marry Miss Melanie. It'll be announced tomorrow night at the ball. Can't be true. Ashley loves me. Whatever comes, I'll love you just as I do now. I can't think of anything better. Winner of 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. That's Red Butler. He's from Charleston. He has the most terrible reputation. That's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed and often, and by someone who knows how. Wah, wah. This war talk's falling all the time in every part of this place. Another triumph 
for our magnificent men in arms. There isn't going to be any war. A story of the old South. You think you could parade right through the Yankee army with a sick woman, a baby, and a simple-minded donkey? I won't think about that now. Tomorrow. It's a historic moment. You can tell your grandchildren how you watched the old South disappear one night. And the war's over, Ashley. Oh, Scarlett, you're so sweet to worry about, Ashley. It is. I mean, forget about the politics of it. It is a very, very good movie. And I think that, that is something worth, worth noting here, is that a movie can be great even if you think the politics of the movie are bad. Uh, and uh, that's something that the left refuses to acknowledge, but I think that we should all acknowledge is that art uh, doesn't necessarily have to represent your point of view to be great art. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So this, this woman named Julia Jaffe, who, who wrote for Politico, and she was leaving Politico anyway to go to the Atlantic. Yesterday, she tweeted out something about Ivanka Trump, uh, and her tweet about Ivanka Trump was, uh, was pretty ridiculous and insane. Uh, here's what she, uh, the, the, the tweet, I, I guess we won't show it because it, it has the F word in it. Uh, so guys, we need to do a better job blocking that out next time. But in any case, she, what she tweeted, what she actually tweeted was either Trump is effing his daughter, right? Because there ta- there's a story about how she's going to act as first lady. It says either Trump is effing his daughter or he's shirking nepotism laws, which is worse. Okay, that's a pretty ridiculous tweet. Okay, the idea that, that Ivanka is going to act as first lady, while it's kind of bizarre, uh, the idea, again, that's that's just in bad taste. It's in poor taste. Uh, you know, she claims, and, and a lot of her defenders claim that Trump has talked about that kind of thing in the past. He said about Ivanka that if you weren't if she weren't his daughter, maybe he'd be dating her and that sort of thing. But again, in poor taste, ridiculous. She was fired for that. I'm not a big fan of this idea that you get fired for a tweet. Like unless the tweet is is something that is so egregiously beyond the pale. And this is this is pretty bad, but I don't think this fulfills the 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 quotient. I mean, it's not an open endorsement of of Hitler. And even if it were, I think there's a, even if it were, I think there's a good case to be made that depending on what your job is, uh, it's not fireable. I, I'm not sure this is fireable. Uh, I think that the the rush to fire people based on things that are pretty clearly bad that that's clearly a bad joke in my opinion. Uh, that that's over the top. Believe me, I have no love for people on the left who tweet things like that. But if we're going to get into the business of everybody gets fired every time somebody says something offensive, it's going to become a pretty ugly world. And that, that by the way, is the way that, that the, the media now work. Uh, another evidence of this, there's a, there's a report that this woman, this teenage Muslim woman uh, from, uh, from New York, she claims that she had been assaulted, yelled at, cursed at, threatened by these three drunk guys shouting Donald Trump at her, and the entire media ran with the story. And then it turned out the entire story was false and she was arrested, and the media jumped on that story. You want to talk about fake news? That's fake news. Where are the fact checkers from Facebook on that? Other fake news, by the way, what people are willing, bottom line is people are willing to, to jump on stories that confirm their biases. People like, there are stories that are too good to check. One that I fell for, I think a lot of people fell for, was this story about Santa. Did you guys see this story? This story about this kid dying in Santa's arms? So here, here is, so I don't know if you guys have the actual video of, the, of Santa talking about it, but here is, here's the video of Santa talking about it originally. And all you can do is, you have to start up that jolly voice, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, since, you know. What's this I hear you're going to be missing Christmas this year? Yeah, you tell me I'm dying. Really? Well, you're not going to miss Christmas. Yell's already had your present already made. We knew you wanted this for a long period, for a long time. And he's like, really? Yeah, sure. And I, brought, I got it right here for you. And brought it up to him, and he was just, he could barely unwrap it, you know? So I helped him. And he saw the Paw Patrols, and I put a grin on his face, you know, and he kind of laid back in the pillow. And he just kind of looked at me and says, no. He says, they tell me I'm dying. I says, you know, he just kind of looked like he had that look on his face, like he wasn't really grasping it, you know? And I'm like, can you do me a favor? And he goes, sure. So like, he was just like, that, you know, sure, you know, that, that kind of thing. He says, you get up there those pearly gates, you just tell him you're saying it's number one out. He's like, I am? Sure are. They'll let you in. I'm sure they'll let you right in. He goes, they will? I says, I know it. It is. He just came up and he gave me a big hug. I had a hold of me. He just kind of looked up at me and he says, Santa, can you help me?
and that's when he passed. Okay, so this is this story went viral. Everybody watched it because it was so moving, and Santa's crying, and the guy looks exactly like Santa. Um, and uh, and it turns out that it's complete bull. <laughs> so every news organization that's tried to verify it can't find the name of the hospital, can't find the kid. Uh, it's it's not verifiable in any way. There are no details about the boy or the hospital. The the Santa here stopped responding to requests. Uh, apparently, they they are having a tough time actually verifying the story. Uh, now they're saying that maybe they've verified some details of the account. The account has changed yet again. Uh, there's no explanation for why the original newspaper retracted the story. Uh, all this is to say that there are a lot of cynical people out there promoting a lot of fake news, but the answer to fake news is to actually do the verification of the news, not to simply decide that things are fake or real based on your personal biases. And I fear that's sort of the path we're headed down with, uh, with the Facebook plan. Okay, so now we will do the mailbag. We're really late on it, but tough. Alrighty, so uh, let's just jump right in. There's a question that's been compiled by our team here because it's been asked about a thousand times. Uh, and uh, and so they, they've sort of done a shortened version of it. And that is, how do you debate with someone while keeping the conversation civil and productive? So the first thing is, you sort of have to be talking with someone who's civil and productive. You can't have a civil, productive conversation with someone who's uncivil. As you noticed from my appearance at University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, if somebody is going to be uncivil and shout at me and flip me off, I'm not going to have a civil conversation with them because it's a waste of time. Otherwise, the way to keep it civil and productive is to not question somebody's motives. That's really what it's about. If somebody's making a good faith argument, that's a different thing than if they're making an argument just to be a jerk or just to tick you off or just to be argumentative. If you don't question their motives and they don't question yours, that's the pretty standard beginning of a decent conversation. If it comes down to motivational questioning, which is what the left likes to do, you're really arguing that because you're racist, then uh, then you can't have a civil or productive conversation. Okay, uh, David writes, Ben, what is your opinion of classical liberalism? I'm conservative, yet I do see merit in a few of their points, like what happens to poorer people. Well, I think that classical liberal you're mixing up the terms. Classical liberalism is free market laissez-faire economics. I think you're talking about kind of old school American liberalism, the idea of a well welfare state, would an extremely minimal amount of welfare be acceptable? If, like you say, the economy's purpose is not to create jobs, what happens if there simply aren't enough good jobs to go around? Inevitably, someone somewhere will be left behind. As, as technology takes more and more jobs, this has become more and more of a pressing question and something I've been reading a fair bit about. The, the big problem with welfare programs is that you have what's called moral hazard. People who stop working because they're on welfare, people who simply live off the welfare and take advantage of the system, the, the living off the backs of the people who are working. So if you are going to construct a welfare system, and, there, and you can do it at the local and state level, the best, by the way, forms of welfare systems are, are done at the local and state level. They're not done at the federal level because the federal government is too big and too unwieldy. And you're likely to care about poor people in your own community far more than you care about poor people in some distant community. One of the other things you have to worry about is is also the idea that as the government expands, as welfare programs grow, people stop giving as much charity, which is true. If I'm giving a lot of my money to, to charity, like there's a big argument in the Jewish community about tithing. Does tithing come before or after tax? That makes a big difference. If the government takes half your money, you're now giving half the money to charity that you would have given beforehand. So you have to determine if you are going to have a welfare system on the local or state level, and I think there's a strong case that there shouldn't be federal welfare. Uh, If you're going to have one on the local or state level, you have to determine what's the best way to administer a welfare system that is not going to disincentivize work that only applies really to people who are incapable of work, you know, for children, uh, for people who are mentally disabled or or people who who are mentally ill. Now, that's, that's a different story. I think that when you have the idea that people deserve welfare dollars just by dint of existing, uh, then you have a bit of a problem. As Stephen writes, what do you think the moral of Westworld is? I think it's a little too early to tell the moral of Westworld. Uh, I think that, that it's only been season one. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but the entire series is about free will versus determinism. And uh, it seems to make the case, which is a bizarre case, that free will exists, but God doesn't, which is almost an impossible argument to make. That free will exists, but that God doesn't. If we're all accidents of environment and genes, then presumably our destiny is already defined. Every action is predictable. If we had a giant computer, we could just dump every piece of information into that computer in which we, in which we, you know, environment, genetics, the, the, the physical world around you. you know, if you could dump all that into a computer, you could predict everything. That would be sort of the atheistic notion. I, I don't understand atheism with free will. I don't see how these two can be compatible. And most atheistic thinkers agree with that. And then they sort of say, shh, we can't talk about that because a society that rejects free will is a society that's destined to fall apart because people are just going to act 
in the worst ways possible and then say, listen, it was my nature. Uh, Rhett writes, in Aleppo, with the dire situation we are witnessing of and hearing, what would be an optimal response from the United States? Well, first, you have to set up a no-fly zone. Uh, there, there is no optimal response from the United States. In the end, if you want to prevent humanitarian crises, either the United States has to get involved militarily um, or, or it doesn't. That's all. Uh, either we have to help topple Assad, uh, which would require resources, or we don't. Either we have to expend resources to set up refugee camps and then put people on the ground with guns to protect them, uh, or we don't. And that's a hard call. I think everybody wants to. Everybody likes in in, in civilized countries to say we don't want to get involved in foreign wars, and then we see the uh, the the sort of result of that. This is what Jim Garrity wrote in National Review. We see the ugliness of that. We see the dead kids, and then we go, "My God, isn't that terrible?" And you can't have it both ways. Where America does not act, genocides take place. Where America does act, Americans sometimes are put in harm's way and die. And that choice is, is the hardest choice a president has to make. We have to decide as a society whether Syrian genocide is something worthwhile us getting involved with. Uh, there's a strong case to be made that, that it is, that, that, but that's also the same case that was rejected in the aftermath of the Bush administration, uh, which, because remember, one of the reasons Bush originally went into Iraq was for humanitarian purposes, and the American public doesn't really want to do that anymore. Uh, Christos writes, were dinosaurs at the same time as Adam and Eve? No, dinosaurs were not at the same time as Adam and Eve. I read the, the beginning of the Bible uh, as largely metaphorical, uh, and uh, the, the dinosaurs clearly exist in one of the earlier days. Men are, people are created on day six in the biblical narrative, and animals are created on day five. So dinosaurs uh, pre-existed human beings, even if you are a Bible believer. There are people who believe in, in the young earth creationism. Not something I believe. I'm telling you what my personal belief is about the Bible and science. Scott says, I feel private companies like Facebook have the right to censor anything they want. Isn't our job as consumers to use competing products and services versus the government taking action against them? Yeah, of course, I'm not calling for Facebook to be shut down. I'm just saying that they're going to lose a lot of business. And people like me and people like our company, if they start censoring material that they just don't like politically because they're on the left, there will have to be an alternative that crops up. Otherwise, there will be a massive drop-off. Uh, Andrew writes, what is the difference between the greater good and the common good, and what difference should it make to government policy? Well, that's, that's a little bit vague. Um, you know, I, when people say the common good, typically they mean the greater good. Um, but these are, these are too vague to, to, to have real ramifications. You know, you, there's the utilitarian greater good, the idea that if you have to kill one person to save two lives, you do it because it's utilitarian. Uh, and then there is the – and then there's – I suppose the common good would be the idea that you redistribute resources to help everybody. But I'd need more specific definitions of the term to answer your question more precisely. Donald writes, do we need First Amendment protection extended legally to social media? How can we make sure abuse of hate speech and fake news regulations don't suppress non-leftist speech? Uh, again, you don't have a right to use anybody else's service. Facebook is not your service. Um, but you can use the power of the market to, to punish them. Uh, Anonymous says, my company just announced the Human Rights Campaign Foundation just named our organization a best place to work for LGBT equality for the fourth year in a row. I looked at the criterion for achieving this status, and I was disappointed to learn the requirements include a number of items that have nothing to do with the work environment, including corporate giving standards and requirements for public engagement, which includes phil philanthropic support for LGBT causes. I'm all for ensuring we have a safe and non-discriminatory work environment, but I'm not happy my company, which is public, has elected to dedicate resources to this cause. This is not equality, it's advocacy. How can I protest without being called out or hurting my status with the leaders of my organization? Uh, you can't. I mean, you, you sort of have to acknowledge the reality of the situation in which you find yourself. Obviously, your company takes pride in this. That's why they're giving money. Uh, that's not to say that stockholders couldn't say that's a waste of money uh, and, that is a, and that's something that you shouldn't be engaging in as a company. David says, how are you going to explain the Thug Life videos to your children when they're older and inevitably see them? Uh, number one, I don't make them. Uh, number two, they are hilarious, and I think that my children will, will have a sense of humor. Uh, Joseph says, if all this alleged hacking has been happening, don't the Democrats know Obama is still the president? All this alleged hacking has been happening on his watch. Shouldn't he be held accountable? This hacking did not allegedly start happening this week. It has been happening for – yes, that's absolutely true. The hacking is partially Barack Obama's fault. He's been incredibly soft on Putin. The reason that he didn't want to go after Putin is because Putin has been supporting his stupid policies in Syria and has been the, the supporting force behind the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, Obama didn't want to piss off Putin. That's why he didn't talk about any of this stuff. And the result was that his girl may have lost the election. Uh, and the result certainly is that now people look at him and say, boy, what a hypocrite. Now you're talking about Russian hacking, uh, but you had 
excuse me, no problem with it five minutes ago when Putin was doing it. Okay, this brings us to the end of the week, and we have lots to talk about, I'm sure, next week as the electors meet on Monday to ratify the decision of the electorate to make Donald Trump president-elect of the United States. You have yourself a wonderful weekend, and we will be back with more. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.